How's everybody? Look at Charles. Everybody say thanks. Yeah. <laughs> he can do. He can do it all, right? So we are. Uh, we're in week three of um, rebuild, right? Webster says that the definition of rebuilding, right, is to build once again something that's been uh, damaged or has been destroyed, right? There's a lot of Listen, there's a lot of conversation in our world today about what's been, what's been damaged or destroyed because of COVID, uh, because of what's taken place with, in our world since the George Floyd death, um, because of what's happening with the upcoming election and politics. Uh, now what's happening to the Supreme Court as a result of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. We live in a, listen, I don't care what side of the aisle you sit on. I don't care what your political views are. We are in a state of needed repair in our country today. And that's just at a macro level, right? That's at a big picture level. The reality is at a smaller picture level, listen, we've got people just in our churches and people online whose marriages are in definite need of rebuilding whose relationships with their children are in need of repair and rebuilding. Maybe your personal life is completely in need of repair or rebuilding, or maybe it's your financial situation that's in need of repair or rebuilding. But the idea of rebuilding, I know, isn't foreign to many of you. Because, listen, if you've been married for any length of time, and if you've added children to the mix, there are seasons of life where you have to rebuild what just day-to-day life destroys, right? And listen, it's something that all of us, all of us have to do periodically along, along the way. It's just part of it. And so the book of Nehemiah really lends itself to learning what it takes as far as characteristics and behaviors that you and I can implement to rebuild. Because the reality is rebuilding anything isn't, isn't any fun. I'm no, I'm not a handy person. Okay. I don't fix broken things very well. I fixed or I replaced a garbage disposal once in my house. Yes, and thanks to YouTube video, it only took me six hours to get it done, right? Uh, when it should have taken any normal human being with any modicum of skills about an hour, maybe 45 minutes. Instead, it took me nearly six hours and I'm just not good at that. And that wasn't even rebuilding. That was just replacing, right? Rebuilding's a whole nother thing. It's sort of taken, taking what's left of what was originally there and in good condition and a great working order and somehow, somehow repairing that to its original or close to its original operating value and operating worth. That's complicated, right? And so our world, listen, our nation is in need of rebuilding. Some of your lives individually are in need of rebuilding. And so we've talked about what Nehemiah teaches us along the way. And last week we talked about the idea that, listen, if we're going to rebuild anything, if we're going to rebuild anything from something personal all the way up to something that is completely universal, we're going to have to let love. We're talking to believers. Listen, if you're here and you're not a believer, man, I'm so glad you came. More than anything, I hope you feel welcomed in this space. If you're online and you're not a believer, so glad that you're making this service a part of your evening. 
again, my hope is and our hope is that you just feel welcomed as you try to figure out you along the journey. But if you're a believer, listen, if we're a believer trying to rebuild our marriages, trying to rebuild our families, trying to rebuild, you know, relationships, trying to rebuild anything, Paul makes it clear that love has to inform us along that way. And we talked last week that rebuilding without letting love inform how you talk to one another, Paul says is worthless. Right? People just hear a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Right? And listen, that's how I've counseled couples for 30 years. I've counseled people for 30 years. Most people that want to rebuild are angry or they're hurt or they're afraid. And so their tone and their language is often not competitive or connected to letting love inform how we do it. And guess what gets accomplished when there's no love informing our speech? Nothing gets accomplished, right? We have to let love inform how we handle what God gives us, right? Every person in here who's a believer, every person that's watching with us online, all of us have been gifted with something that God's given us as a gift. Learning how to use that by letting love inform that use matters, right? Listen, you can, you can cast out demons in Jesus name. You can stand on this stage and preach an amazing sermon, but if love doesn't inform how you use it, Paul says it absolutely means nothing. Right. And then last week we talked about, you got to let love inform how you behave, right? It just has to inform how you act toward people. Right. I mean, love doesn't seek its own. I mean, listen, if we just practice, listen, for me, if we just practice two things, love is patient and love doesn't seek its own. If we just practice those two things, imagine how your life would be different in your relationships with your family, your significant other, right? With your coworkers, just learn to be patient as an act of love and learn not how to make everything about yourself. Do you know what would happen in our world if Christians began to practice that? We'd probably be able to rebuild a lot of things, right? So we're going to move to chapter three tonight of Nehemiah. So if you got your Bibles... Hopefully you got your Bibles or your phones. Um, want to encourage you as we move along here. Listen, Wednesday night is a great time for you to bring your Bible and take some notes or bring your iPad or your iPhone and take some notes. Uh, as we do, we, we have an opportunity to go a little bit longer. Um, well, see, I already forgot to set my alarm, so we're in trouble now, right? All right. So we're going to look at chapter three. So how many of you have ever read a warning label off a product, a warning label off a product, right? Some of the warning labels on products are completely ridiculous. Let me show you a couple. I I picked five. So here's the first one. Check these warning labels out, right? And I sort of picked them in order. Did you guys get those? Right? Oh, here's the first one. All right. Check this out. This is, this was found inside, right? This was found inside an article of clothing. Do not wear for sumo wrestling. Right? That's a great... I love it. Those are fails for this article of clothing. Right? How about this one? This is a... You you can figure this out. This is a washer. Right? Do not put any person in this washer. Right? It's It's an industrial strength washer. Right? How about this one? It's a phone. Warning, be careful of bad language in this mobile phone because a partner's feeling is going to be bad. Let's keep mobile manners. 
right? How about this one? Inside of a, inside of a child's coat. Wash inside out, remove child before washing. That's literally on a warning label. And this is my favorite. This was found inside of a Catholic church. Articles of value should not be left on seats whilst receiving Holy Communion. Right? That was the warning inside of a Catholic church, right? Listen, some of the warnings, and and honestly, some of the best ones I couldn't share because we're not sitting somewhere besides church, right? But there are some really dumb warning labels. But here's the thing. No matter how dumb the warning is, if you ignore the warning label inside of the child's jacket that says, remove child before washing, if you ignore, no matter how dumb that warning is, something bad's going to happen. Would you agree? Right? Listen, every one of us, to some degree, knows what it's like to drive a car that, a, that the check engine light comes on. How many? Right? How many of you right now have the check engine light on in your car? Okay, good. Makes me feel better, right? Listen, you know, we, th- those are affectionately referred to by mechanics as idiot lights, right? We won't go into why they're called that, just that mechanics are mean people, right? So, but the reality is warnings are designed, right, to protect us from future harm, right, or danger, right? That's ultimately what they're designed to do, no matter how dumb they may sound, Right? It sounds dumb to tell an adult, don't put a person in an industrial strength washing machine, right? That seems dumb, right? But ignore that warning and something bad could happen for sure to the individual. Would you agree with that? Chapter three of Nehemiah is an interesting chapter because basically all it does is it gives a summary, right? It gives a summary of every person or every family unit that did the work of building the wall. A wall that took 52 days to build. Chapter 3 is sort of a summary of all the groups of people that worked on the wall. To read it, you might go, gosh, this is the reason I don't read the Bible, right? Because it's one family built this and one family built this and one family... You can read it and go, "I I can't read a book that's like this. But... There are some warnings in this chapter that I want to share with you. Because listen, if you're here to rebuild your life, if you're here to rebuild your marriage, if you're here to rebuild your family, if you're here to rebuild your finances, if you're here to help rebuild this community, if you're if you're interested in rebuilding your school, or if you're re- interested in rebuilding the government, right? Wherever you're interested in rebuilding, these are warnings that you and I cannot avoid without risk of serious injury. Here's the first one. You've got some, again, you don't have notes. If you download the Version Bible app, okay, and go to the part of the menu that says more, there will be a tab there for live events. You can always find live events. And on Wednesday at 630, it'll say Tomoka Christian Church. You click it and all the sermon notes are right there for you. Okay. Here's the first warning, right? Don't ignore the power of unity. Don't ignore the power of unity over a mission. Okay. Let me just read a few verses out of Nehemiah chapter three. We're going to read like 10 verses here. Listen, listen and see if you can't pick up on a theme in these verses. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section and Zachar, son of Emery, built next to them. 
Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, also made repairs. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeah and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Jadon of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under the under Rehum, son of Bani. Behind, beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of half of the district of Keilah, carried out repairs for his district. Next to him, the repairs were made by their fellow Levites under Benui, son of Hinnadad, ruler of the other half of the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle of the wall. And next to him, Baruch, son of Zabdi, zealously repaired another section. You get the point, right? Next to him, next to him, next to him, and next to him, right? Why? How did all of these people, how did all of these people come to work for one specific thing? Because there is power in a unified mission of individuals, right? Listen, when you can get individuals to collectively believe in the overall mission more than their individual agenda, you can get something accomplished. And see, part of what we do when we go to rebuild something is we underestimate, we ignore the warning that there's power in unity of mission. Listen, let me read a passage in, in Mark 1. This is, how, this is how focused Jesus was on mission. And we're talking about a guy who was healing sick, casting out demons, right? Jesus could do anything. Listen to what he says in Mark 1.35. Early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left his house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Here's what Jesus said. And what were they looking for? If you read the context, they were wanting more miracles. They had just seen him do amazing things the day before. They get up the next day and we're like, man, we want more of this reality show. We want to be a part of this. Jesus says this. This is his focus of mission. Let's go somewhere else. To a nearby village. Why? So I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Listen, the reality is, is that when you can get a group of people like Nehemiah did to collectively be unified over one mission, you can get amazing things done. You see, part of the struggle with a church of any size is getting anybody to agree on one particular mission, right? I think we should be doing this. I think we should be discipling people. I think we should have Sunday school class. I think we should have community groups. You know what I think? I think we should have two kinds of worship. You know what I think? I think we should do this. Guess what happens when there's all of that disagreement about the unity or the, uh, uh, about what the mission is for everybody? You know what gets done? Nothing. If you don't believe me, take your family, take your family out to eat and agree. Agree that, hey, we're going to go to place A and we're going to have a great time. And then watch one of your children hijack the evening for their own agenda. Right? The minute there's not unity of mission, how does that go for you and the rest of your family? Terrible. Have a holiday and invite crazy Uncle Earl over to your house. Right? 
Right? Invite, invite Aunt Esther over, somebody that you don't hang around with, and watch one family member ruin the unity of mission because they use their own agenda. Nehemiah got all of these people to rally together, to work together, because if we ignore, when we rebuild anything, the power of unity of mission, we run the risk of failure. It's why, listen, it's why so many people who go to counseling don't get anything accomplished. Because two people who come to counseling who can't share the same mission can't get anything accomplished. And oftentimes when you're trying to counsel people, one person's in there because they got this agenda. And the other person's in there and they got this agenda. This is one of the things I love about Tomoka Christian Church. Nobody, listen, you ain't ever going to hear me say this is a perfect church. You're never going to hear me tell you that this is the greatest church in the world. But I am going to tell you there are things about Tomoka Christian Church that I absolutely love. And here's the one, the most important thing I love. At the leadership level, at the leadership level, there is 100% agreement on the unity of mission. And that is to make it hard for people to go to hell from this generation. Do you think that the leaders all, all don't have their own personal opinions about what they think we should do in every situation? Of course we do. But we subject those opinions to the benefit of mission. It's my hope with our staff. We've got some incredibly intelligent, gifted, trained staff people. And they are so smart and they are so talented. And they are so opinionated. And they are so right most of the time. But if I let every one of their opinions have value, we wouldn't get anything done. But we wake up every day and we say as a staff, we got one mission. We're going to do something today that makes it hard for somebody to go to hell from this generation. There's nothing we can't do. We can send 52 teams around the world. We can raise $4,600 on a Wednesday night where there's a couple hundred people in here and a, and a, and a handful of people watch online. And you can raise $4,600 to feed Haitian teenagers and elementary kids for two months that you've never met. That's power in the unity of mission. Amen. Listen, when you're rebuilding something, you've got to find agreement and you can't underestimate the power of collectively agreeing on something. Here's the second warning. Second warning is this. Don't ignore the value of doing work close to home. Listen to verse 28 through 30. Nehemiah says above the horse gate, the priests made repairs each in front, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Emmer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah. I'm exhausted with these Hebrew names. And Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Listen. If what you want to repair and rebuild doesn't start at home, it's not going to have long before it reaches its expiration date. It's just not. I've been a Christian for a long time. I've served in ministry a long time. And here's what I know. There are so many people who love Jesus and want to do great things for him. And they're willing to do it by ignoring the work that needs to be done close to home. And eventually... Eventually, that always catches up with you. Jesus said in Acts 1, in Acts 1, 7 and 8 to his, to his 
disciples, to his apostles before he left. He said, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father set by his own authority when he's coming back. He says, but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you, listen to this, you're going to be my witness, right? You're going to be the storyteller of my, of my story. Where? First of all, in where? Everybody say it, right? In Jerusalem. Where did these people live? They lived in Jerusalem. We have to start at home. Listen, we can't impact our state. We can't impact our nation if we can't impact Ormond Beach. We can't do anything until we impact what's close to home. And so what happens so many times is we, listen, it's a warning. Don't ignore the power of doing your work close to home. And listen, I love the study of the human brain. I love how... I love how, I love the psychology of the human brain. I love the decision-making of the human brain. And here's what I observe out of people who ignore the work that has to be done at home. They have to work twice as hard when they get to Judea or Samaria or to another part of the earth because they have to make up for what they know is lacking. And those people are exhausted. When you ignore the work that has to be done at home, you go to work and you have to work twice as hard because you're trying to make up for something you know you're ignoring and needs to be done. Right? It's just the way our human brain works. Why? Because we do everything we can to cope with our own inadequacies and our own failures. Everything that, everything that God taught us always starts close to home. And listen, I know there are, there are people in this room and I know people that are watching online that wanted to start close to home and they didn't have a partner that wanted to do it with them. All right. I get that. Right? Hebrew says, as much as it depends on you, you live at peace with all people. Right? There's only so much you can do. You can't make somebody do that. But that doesn't mean when you do it again or you work to rebuild it to move forward, you don't do it that way the next time. Right? Start at home. Start at home. Listen, I want you to do great things in the name of Jesus. I want you to travel. I want you to do mission work. I want you to raise money. I want you to teach children in our children's ministry. I want you to be a youth partner to our youth. I want you to participate in mops. I want you to do all great things. I don't want any of you to do it at the expense of ignoring the work that has to be done at home. Right? It has to be. There's, it's not a coincidence that a generation of, 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 of young adults are not coming to church. It's not a coincidence. They were raised by a lot of families who put their faith in Jesus and ignored the work at home to do greater work. Those things catch up to you. It'll catch up to your marriage. It'll catch up to your relationships. It'll catch up to you financially. And more than anything, it'll catch up to you mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Because eventually, here's what you become. You become somebody who pretends. You become somebody who's an actor in a play. Because the only way to cope with what you know you're ignoring is to pretend. And people who pretend for very long just get exhausted. So don't ignore it. Don't ignore the power of working at home. They built the gate close to their living quarters. It's where you can best protect things, right? It's where you best launch everything from. Don't ignore the work close to home. Third warning. Third warning. This is one of my favorites. Don't ignore the power don't ignore the power of placing value on marginalized people. Don't ignore the power of placing value on marginalized people. Listen to this verse. 
Nehemiah 3.12 says this, Shalom, the son of Helohash, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his, everybody say it, everybody online, everybody here, he did the work with the help of his who? Now that might seem insignificant to you, but in the Jewish culture, women were marginalized human beings. Mothers that did not produce male offspring had no value. Girls had no value. And they didn't have a say. They couldn't speak in the, in the synagogue. They couldn't, they just didn't have any value. Their value was in being a commodity, a property. Their value was in marrying another man from another tribe to create an alliance between families. Listen to what this father did. He did the work. He did the work with the help of his who? His daughters. Why? Because listen, when you go to rebuild something, if you ignore the warning of putting of the power that comes from valuing marginalized people, you run the risk of complete failure. Again, in an interpersonal relationship, I see this all the time, right? People come to counseling and, and, and they can't, listen, they can't rebuild anything because there's no value given to the other person in the room. They've been completely marginalized because they've messed up. They've sinned, they've lied, they've betrayed, they've committed, you know, adultery, they've done whatever, and now they're marginalized. And because they're marginalized, we don't take the time to place value on that person. And guess what gets accomplished? Nothing. And that, listen, that, you not know, talking to a person who hasn't lived this and walked this. That's not ignoring your pain. That's just not giving your pain more power than the value that you can give to marginalized people. And as Christians, we're called to do both. Can I get an amen? We're not called to, to, listen, we're not called to give justice. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says who? Says the, not the cord, right? Took me a while to figure that out. I always thought that in the Greek that meant the cord, right? Right? We, listen, I counsel people all the time and they talk about, I want justice. That's not fair. Yes, If we're living in a court system where you get to enact justice for the behaviors of other people towards you, you're probably right. But we're given a different mantra. Are we not, church? Forgive as you've been forgiven. That's different, right? Listen, when you go to rebuild anything, listen, and that's that's what's happening in our world today. Is people who have no value placed on them because they're marginalized people have finally had enough. Listen, and we can argue about the black and white thing all we want. But the reality is, if one black person feels marginalized because they are less than because their color of their skin, we can't underestimate the power of valuing marginalized people. That's just the truth of the matter. Listen, when you value marginalized people, you can't imagine what things get done. Listen to Jesus in John chapter 4. We meet a woman who's completely marginalized by her society. Totally marginalized. First of all, she's a woman and she's a Samaritan. Which means she is totally discarded by the Jewish people. Samaritans were less than. Listen, Samaritans are treated worse by Jews than blacks were treated by whites throughout our history. Listen to what it says. When a Samaritan woman, and listen, they were despised by Jewish people. We have no idea the hatred. It's sort of the same hatred I feel toward Packer fans, right? As a Bears fan. It borders that kind of hatred, right? 
When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, this was at noon. You didn't draw water in the middle of the desert at noon. You do it at six in the morning or six in the evening. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. I love that. That's a stupid little addendum. But Jesus sent his Jewish teenage followers into a into a Samaritan town and the racist teenagers got to meet Samaritans. It's just a cute little verse, right? Anyway, the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman, meaning I'm a marginalized human being in your economy. How can you ask me for a drink? Why are you even speaking to me? Because I am a marginalized human being. I have no value for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's an understatement. Keep going. I know there's another verse there. There you go. This is the value that Jesus placed on this woman. The woman said to him, sir, give me the water so that I won't get thirsty. Because he said, hey, there's water here to drink that will quench your thirst forever. She said, give it to me. Why? Because I don't have to keep coming to the place that reminds me of my pain and my marginalized status. Because every time this woman went to the well at noon, you know what she went, how she went? She went by herself and she went full of shame and she went full of the value placed on her by being marginalized. She said to Jesus, if there's a water I can drink that will keep me from coming to a place that reminds me I have no value and no worth and I've got nothing but pain, please, dear Jesus, give me that water. Right? Here's what Jesus said to her. If you'd have just asked, I'd have given it to you. That's how much value he placed on her. So he said to her, go call your husband and come back. What's Jesus know about us? Jesus knows what? Everything. Did he know she didn't have a husband? Answer? Yes. So why did he ask her? To humiliate her? Make fun of her? No. He said, she said, I have no husband. She replied, Jesus said... You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. Five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Listen, this woman was a Jew, or was a Samaritan, and she was a woman. And this was a woman that had been with five other men who weren't her husband. And the man she currently with wasn't her husband either. She was either a prostitute... Or she was a woman that had no value because she'd been discarded five times by husbands, which is highly unlikely in the Jewish society. More than likely, this woman was a prostitute. Most women didn't marry five times in a Jewish society because once you were married once and discarded, it was very difficult for you to get married again. But it was not complicated for you to have five husbands and a sixth one that's not yours if you're a prostitute. She had no value. And you know what Jesus said? Instead of ignoring the power of value on a marginalized person, Jesus said, listen, if you just ask me, I'll give it to you. And you will never have to come back here again. And look what happens. Verse 10, Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would just ask him and he would have given you living water. Value placed on her. Now look what she does with that value in verse 39. This is amazing. Many of the Samaritans, because she goes into town. She goes into town screaming and hollering, you got to come meet this guy. He knows everything about me. And he still finds value in me. She said many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's why? Her testimony. What was her testimony? I'm a worthless Samaritan woman who's a prostitute who sleeps with married men. Was that her story? No. Her story was, I'm all of those things and this guy knew it and he still placed value on me. 
And so she told them, and they believed in Jesus because of her story. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, because they, they believed in Jesus when they heard the story, they came to him themselves. They urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Listen to this. And because of his words now, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. You see, here's the thing, church. You're never going to rebuild the thing if you continue to place no value on marginalized people. It's, it's another thing I love about Tomoka. We don't care where to go. I went to a NASCAR or a, or a, a race, a NASCAR race, whatever, out at the New Smyrna uh, Speedway. Anybody ever been to New Smyrna Speedway? There's a sign out there. At least there was a few years ago. It said, here's what it said. Where we race is why we race. I will never forget it. Where we race is why we race. You know what that sign said to me? That slogan said to me? It said that the reason we're racing in New Smyrna is because we place value on the people of New Smyrna. You're the reason why we're here tonight. You're the reason why we're racing tonight. Because where we race is why we race. Listen, that's what we do at Tomoka. Where we go is why we go. Why do we go to the slums of Guatemala? Why do we go to the slums of, of Haiti? Why do we go to the slums of, of Africa and all of these places? Why do we go to the least of these? Because we don't want to ignore the power of placing value on marginalized people. Is part of the reason why our country stinks. Is because we've always ignored placing value on marginalized people and we place value on people of power. Right? We place value on people of beauty. We place value on people of wealth. Jesus places value on everybody. Listen, you can't rebuild a relationship. You cannot rebuild a family. You can't rebuild anything if you're not willing to place value on people who are marginalized. So listen, not to be political at all, but if you want to make a difference in our world today, stop saying hateful things to people who already feel marginalized. That's not helpful. And I don't care how right you think you are. And listen, let's be honest. In the world of political correctness, everybody feels marginalized. Everybody, right? That's exhausting. Not everybody's marginalized, right? I can, I can tell a joke and make fun of you without marginalizing you. Learn to get over yourself and laugh about a few things, right? But there are huge, listen, there are huge segments of our society of people that completely feel marginalized. This was a Jew or a Samaritan woman who was sleeping with married men and was currently sleeping with one in front of Jesus. And Jesus said, you have so much value. I would give you eternal life today if you would just ask. And then she went and told that story and people came to find Jesus. Is that not amazing? Listen, we've got to stop ignoring placing value on people that are marginalized. Stop being critical. Listen, it's why we go to do prison ministry. Prison is full of people that society has completely marginalized and devalued. They're there because they belong there. Because they're doing time for their crime. But that doesn't mean that as a believer, we can't place value on them. So we're in there every week, loving on them and listening to their stories and telling them the value that Jesus places on them. 
We got to do the same thing. And then last, here's the fourth warning. Don't ignore the value of serving. Listen to this verse in verse five and verse one. The next section, the next session was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles, their leaders, their higher-ups would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. But verse 1 says, Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priest went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. Listen, you and I can't ignore the power of just being a servant. I'm just going to read a few verses here to to wrap it up. Let's read Mark 10. When the 10 heard about this, James and John's mom went to Jesus and said, listen, my kids, my kids are better than these kids. So when you get to heaven, would you put John on your right and James on your left, right? Let them be second and third in command in heaven. That's what John and James's mom, the original millennial mom did, right? She went in and interviewed for them to Jesus. You know, it's crazy. We think this is a new thing, right? Mom's interviewing with their kids. No. This is what James and John's mom did in front of Jesus. So after the 10 disciples heard about it, they were angry. They became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said this, you know that those who are regarded, right, as rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. That's not so with you, right? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your what? servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. How about this one? In Acts 20, 35, Paul said, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words, the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And then how about Galatians five thirteen? You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But don't use your freedom to indulge in your flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Listen, you want to fix your marriage? If you ignore the power of serving your mate, you run the risk of failure. You want to fix your family? And you ignore the power of serving being least instead of greatest? right? Instead of being a slave to everybody in the house, you're going to fail. You want to fix, you want to fix your neighborhood. You want to fix your community. You want to fix your nation. Listen, unless you're willing to serve others, unless you're willing to be slave of all, unless you're willing to understand the power of serving, you're not going to be successful. It's just not going to happen. Nehemiah understood the power of serving. He understood the value that it creates. It's another reason why I love this church. Because listen, we have, we probably have 4,500 members or partners in our church across three campuses, minimum. They don't all attend at once, but they come periodically throughout the year. That's 4,500 people. One of the things that makes Tomoka valuable in its work of mission is is that we get the power of serving. The greatest people in our church are the people that are willing to serve. And I'm not talking about, oh, I serve at this ministry, this ministry. I don't need your resume. If you got a resume to tell me how you're serving, I don't want to hear it. 
I'm just talking about somebody who's got a heart to go. The most important thing I could ever do in rebuilding anything is to serve the people that I want to see rebuilt. That's the most important thing we can do. It's the most important thing you can do, right? And if you're a Christ follower, it's what you've been commanded to do. Jesus said, not so with us. If you want to be great, you become least. If you want to be first, you got to be last. If you want to be like me, you got to be servant of all. Of all. Not just the people that think the way you think. Not just the people that act the way you act. Not just the people that believe politically the way you believe. Not just the people that, that love black lives or the people that love blue lives or the people that love red lives or the people that love white lives. Listen, the people that you serve are just the people that you get along with. Jesus said you ain't no different in the world. And we've been called to a different standard, have we not, church? Which means we serve everybody. We keep our opinions to ourselves. We do all things without grumbling and complaining. And we understand the value of serving one another. Listen, isn't that why you're here? Isn't that why you love Jesus? Because Jesus decided that the most important thing in his world wasn't to go, I'm God. I made it all. I'm the greatest thing in the entire world. Right? He didn't, he didn't do the Titanic. Right? The Titanic thing. Right? He didn't stand up front and scream so people would notice him. You know what Jesus said? Being equal to God isn't the greatest thing in the world for me to do. But serving humanity is the greatest thing I could ever do. At the core, that's why you're a believer in Jesus. Because Jesus didn't underestimate the power of serving other people. And now he's asked us to do the same. Listen, I don't want to be a group of people that ignore those warnings. I don't want you to ignore. I don't want us to ignore them on a macro level, but man, I do not want you to ignore them on a personal level, right? Don't avoid the power of the unity of mission. If there's a disagreement, man, you got to figure it out. And if that means you got to be humble to agree, do it. Don't underestimate the power, right, of, of, of serving together. With, with each other, right? Don't underestimate the power of doing the work at home. Listen, if you're not doing the work at home and you're compensating by doing the work somewhere else, eventually that catches up to you. Don't underestimate and ignore the warning to place value on marginalized people. We have a society full of marginalized people. I don't need you to tell me why they're marginalized. I don't need you to tell me why it's their fault. What I need you to do is place value on them the way Jesus did. At the end of the day, don't ignore the warning label of ignoring the power of serving one another. Yeah, pastor, but I've been doing that for the last six months. Good, keep doing it. I've been doing it for, for years. Good, keep doing it. Right? Because there's power in serving one another. All right. I think it's good stuff. Four people agree, right? All right. So we'll be back next week. Into chapter four. Next week, we're going to talk about how do we handle criticism. <laughs> so read chapter four in Nehemiah. We'll cover that. Let's pray. Remember, offering on the way out for mops, you can give online as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for Nehemiah. Um, man, I, I, I want us to, I want us to get better at not ignoring those warning labels and then, and then and then complaining about the result of ignoring them. So I, I pray that we'll be people that will, that will take to heart these warnings from Nehemiah. And understand that ultimately we can get a wall built in 52 days. That we can, that we can accomplish great things. 
when we don't ignore these warning labels. Thank you for these people that have made tonight a part of their week and for those people that have joined us online. And ultimately, Lord, I thank you for your word. It's the power, right? It's the power that brings us into the gospel, which is the power that you give us, right, to be saved. So I pray for your word to do its work, for your spirit to do his work. And ultimately, Lord, we claim your promise to do your work, um, to give the increase. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church.